Well, this time, let's all turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to, to 16. Stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. What is a church? If you could describe a church... What would you say? Now, some might say a, a building with a cross on it or a place of worship. Others might say something like the people of God. Most of you here this morning probably understand that at a minimum, a church is where Christians come together to worship God. Now, in our modern Christian lingo, we have further defined churches with additional adjectives. There are Bible-teaching churches, gospel-centered churches, prosperity gospel churches, seeker churches, traditional churches, white churches, black churches, immigrant churches, and the list goes on. Every church has its distinctives. Some churches feature rich teaching. Other churches are known for their involvement in the community. Some churches have great music or... Uh, ton of support programs. Some, some churches are, are great at marketing and have a vibrant online presence. Others are known for their beautiful property. But what should a church be about? What should a church be known for? How, how does the Bible describe a, a church? And today we're going to find out how the Apostle Paul described the church in 1 Timothy 3. And we're going to discover what he thought churches should be known for. This will be the, the final sermon in our mini-series about the church and its leadership from 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we've looked at what makes an elder in verses 1 through 7, then what makes a deacon in verses 8 through 13, and, and today we'll find out what makes a church from verses 14 to 16. And, and this is a critical topic for us to have clarity about. The church today has a bad rep in many circles. Some might think of it as just a, a good place to take a nap. Uh, others might think of it as a, as a place where well-meaning but ignorant people like to get together. Many view it as a religious crutch. Some take an even more jaded approach that church is actually a harmful institution in their minds. It's a place of sexual abuse and place of hypocrisy. It's a place of greed. 
It's a place where intolerance is cultivated. And I don't dare dismiss those thoughts. I think there is some legitimacy in all of those thoughts. The church does not have a clean record. There are plenty of blemishes that the church has incurred over its long history. But that does not negate the importance of the church in this world. While the church is not perfect, and while the church has often emphasized the wrong things over the years, it remains a crucial part of God's redemption in this world. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In the book of Ephesians, we learn that through Christ, God has saved people from all backgrounds, and he has brought them together into the, the church, into his church, in order that the church might display his wisdom. The church is meant to be the kaleidoscope of the world so that people might catch a glimpse of the multifaceted glory of God, that they might see his love and his wisdom and his holiness and his goodness and his mercy and And though the church might still be imperfect, its stubborn existence points to the promise of Jesus to not abandon his people and to the day when he will will come and receive his purified bride to himself. And he will show the world through the church. He will show the world, the the rulers and, and authorities in the heavenly places that God will indeed be victorious over evil in the end. The church is critical to God's plan of redemption. So even though many today may look down upon the church or consider it irrelevant to their lives, we we cannot neglect the importance of the church for this world. But we need to get the church right. If we don't understand the fundamental nature of God's church, we will not effectively display his manifold wisdom. Instead, we will present to the world a pitiful caricature of God instead of the perfect character of God we were meant to showcase. So for our church to function the way that it should in God's plan, we we need to make sure we have a solid understanding of what makes a church. We need to be clear about the church's identity. And that's revealed for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Today we'll reflect briefly upon the importance of the church, and then we'll spend most of our time considering the identity of it. First, let's briefly consider the importance of the church. Well, we've already seen how highly Paul thought of the church from Ephesians 3.10. He believed the church is meant to testify to God's wisdom in this world. And his high view of the church manifested itself in the priority Paul placed upon the church in his ministry. We see this in verses 14 and 15 of our passage. Paul wrote in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What we find here is that Paul had hoped to visit Timothy and the Ephesian church. He wrote that he had hope to come to them soon, but he also knew there was a good chance he would be delayed. 
And so because of the importance of the church and its health, he wrote the things that he did in order that Timothy and the church would know how they ought to behave. In, in verse 14, the phrase, these things, could refer to the entire letter of 1 Timothy, but more likely Paul seems to be referring to his instructions beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, where he starts by writing, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, etc., etc. And from that point on, through the end of chapter 3, Paul was urging the church to pray and to make sure that women knew their roles and he reminded the church that it needed to ensure that its elders and deacons were, were qualified. Now, these were urgent matters for him to communicate because he wanted to make sure that the church was operating the way that it was meant to operate. And this is just another example of how much Paul cared for the church. Like a chief operating officer, he was making sure things were functioning the right way. And he knew it was a, a crucial part of God's redemptive plan. He knew the church was a crucial part, and, and he felt obligated to make sure that the churches under his supervision were functioning properly. He wanted to make sure Timothy and the Ephesians were doing church properly. So he gave them some vital instructions. And, and then as he continued on in verse 15 and into verse 16, he reminded them of what the church is all about. And so we move with him from considering the importance of the church to reflecting upon the identity of the church, or the identity of the church. And at the end of verse 15, Paul uses three phrases to help us understand the church's identity. What makes a, a church a church? Well, Paul described the church this way. It is the household of God, which is the church of the living God and a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so how did Paul describe the church? It is the household of God. It is the, the church of the living God. And it's a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, the, the church is God's family. And the church is God's dwelling place. And the church upholds God's truth. Let's take each of these concepts and, and think about them together this morning. Let's first think about how the church is God's family. The church is God's family. The word household that Paul uses in verse 15 to describe the church is one that he has employed multiple times in this letter. In verses 4 to 5 of chapter 3, Paul said that elders much, must manage their households well, if they are to care for the household of God. In verse 12, he also wrote of deacons needing to manage their households well. The, the idea is that a, how a, a church leader manages his family is a key consideration in whether they are qualified or not to serve because the church is God's family. Well, this kind of family language continues on in chapter 5. Uh, there Paul writes about how older and younger men and older and younger women are to relate to one another in the church. They should treat each other as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. He also writes about how the church should become the family of any widows who have none. And so throughout this epistle, Paul uses to, the, the language of family to talk about how the church should function. And that's because when someone becomes a Christian, he or she becomes a 
child of God, part of the family of God. Paul wrote in Romans 8.14 that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And this concept that the church is God's family is essential to the identity of the church. It means that when you are saved, you are not just saved individually and reconciled to God, but you are saved to be part of the community of God. You don't just receive new life in Christ, you receive a new family in Christ. And being a family means a number of things for the church. First, it means that the church knows who's in the family. That being God's family means that the church knows who's in the family. In any family, there are those who belong to the family and those who don't. We all understand that family members have certain privileges that others don't. When I go on vacation, I, I might invite some of you, but I'm always inviting my family. It's important to, to know who's in the family. When, when I book hotels, rooms for our family, I know I'm booking a room for five, not for six or seven or, or eight. And I also don't want to book for four and leave one of my children um, out. And, and we, when we get to that hotel, I'm telling my kids to watch out for our stuff and to, to watch out for each other. We know who's in our family and we take care of each other. And the same applies for the church. As the family of God, we need to know who's in the family. The leaders of God's church need to know who they're accountable for. The, the rest of the family needs to, to know who to look out for and We owe it to the world to clearly identify who is really a Christian and who is not. If we understand that we are meant to display God's manifold wisdom as his family, people who hang around us but don't have that same understanding and commitment cannot be associated with us or else they may confuse the world about who God is. Many churches call this church membership. It's a a process for people attending church to officially identify that they desire to be part of the church. At our church, we prefer to use the term church family because of passages like this. While being a church member is also a biblical term, being part of a family, I believe, is a richer concept that speaks to both our privileges and responsibilities as the church. So one implication of being the household of God or being God's family is that the church must be able to identify who's in the family. For the church to function properly as the church, it is essential for the church to have some boundaries. But the church is also a family that is willing to welcome outsiders in. All of us in God's family are adopted into it. We were outsiders who were brought in. So being God's family means that the church welcomes all who want to belong. Being God's family means that the church welcomes all who want to belong. In any family, you have a a mix of generations. You have the patriarchs and matriarchs who are meant to be honored. You have young children who are still learning their way. And and every family seems to have a, a weird uncle or cousin that's a little off. That's just par for the course. 
in any family, especially as you begin to expand outside the, the nuclear family, you, you realize that there is a great diversity of ages and experiences and sometimes cultures and personalities. <coughs> Excuse me. That's true of the church as well. The church ideally isn't meant to be a homogeneous gathering of 20-somethings or families at the same stage of life or, or all retired folks. The church is meant to be a place where people of all ages and cultures and backgrounds and, and personalities mix and collide. Now, that's different than many of the other communities that we tend to belong to. At school, you're a student, you're around, surrounded by, by children that are your age or young adults that are your age. At work, there might be a bit more diversity, but you're still just around people of working age. In a, ch in a church, you should ideally have people of every age. No one graduates. No one is forced to retire. Everyone is included. A family is a place where as long as you show up, you're allowed in. And that's not true of other organizations in this world. If you're not producing at work, you're out. In sports, if you can't compete anymore, you're off the team. Even in Christian parachurch organizations, like a Christian school or a missions organization, if you're not cutting it, you can be let go or counseled out. But not the church. Not the church. Everyone who wants to be in the church should belong. The, the church just isn't as efficient as other organizations in this world because it's a family. It's not a business. The church can't, or at least it, it shouldn't, ever push the ones that are hard to deal with away. The church is a place where awkward and odd and sinful and needy people are invited to come and stay. If, if you've ever had the thought that you seem to meet some of the most interesting people at church, it's because the church is operating the way that it should. You can join a country club or be part of a foodie crew or join an entrepreneurship society if you want to just mingle with other people like you that you feel comfortable around. But if the church is really being the church, it's, it's welcoming the weak and the ignored in this world. And that's an indication that the church is actually functioning as the family of God. This is one of the few places in the world where those who don't feel like they belong should belong. Being God's family means that everyone who wants to join is welcome. Another implication of Paul's description that the church is the household of God is that there are household rules. And being God's family means that the, the church has family rules. In my family, we have unspoken Chan family rules, sometimes spoken. We have rules for where you can eat in the house and when our kids can have screen time. We have rules for how we speak to one another and rules for how we clean up after meals. So too in the church, we have rules. And Paul has outlined some of these rules already in this letter. There are rules for those who can be leaders in God's church, elders and deacons. There are rules for what men and women can do in the church. There are rules for what should be prayed for. There are rules about discipline. And Paul will outline more rules in the following chapters. The, the New Testament is full of rules for God's church. Being God's family doesn't mean that anything goes. There are expectations for how we act in this family. There is discipline. This is because we aren't just any children. 
We are the children of God. And so being God's family means that the church knows who's in the family. It means that the church welcomes all who, who want to be in the family. And it means that the church has family rules. In addition, being God's family means that the church stays together. The church stays together. In any family, there will be disputes and disagreements. People will say and do hurtful things. But a family is meant to stay together through all of them. As the household of God, the church is meant to stay united. When relationships are frayed, there should be a resolve to mend them over time. Throughout the New Testament, we find the apostles appealing to the churches to be unified. Since the church is God's family, it is meant to stay together. We have a meal together, the Lord's Supper, every month at our church to remind ourselves that we are the family of God. It's a family meal. And if there is tension or there are unresolved rifts between family members, that meal is a reminder that you need to make things right. You need to fast, in essence, before you come to this meal. That's how important our unity is. The church is meant to stay together. Finally, being God's family means that the church should feel like home. Being God's family means that the church should, should feel like home. Now, there should be a certain kind of comfort you feel among your brothers and sisters at church. There should be a feeling that you can just be yourself. You can allow others into your struggles. You can, you can share your feelings. And you can expect to find people that are going to help you. They might not always do it perfectly like any family. But out of love, they desire to come alongside you and to rebuke you and to encourage you so that you might honor God in your life. Uh, there, there's more that could be said, but these are some of the implications of being God's family. The church is the household of God. It's a committed group of Christians who have indicated that they want to live life together under the rules of their father. It's a family that is always willing to grow and welcome new members, and it's a, a family that stays together, that, that shares with one another, that helps one another. If you have had children, or you have children who are, you know, more than, past the toddler stage, uh, one of the things that is always fun to track is what they like to do most at each stage of life. Young children are often asked what they like to do most for fun, and many children will say something like, play video games, or um, watch sports, or play sports, or draw, or or read, or, you know, you can think of a number of things they could say, but once in a while, a child will say, I like to spend time with my family. And without fail, that warms the heart of every parent. It's an indication that the, that the child understands what it means to be part of a loving family. Christian, what do you like to do for fun? You might still like to game or, or draw or read or watch shows or play sports, but I hope one of the things you like to do most is spend time with your church family. If that's what you love to do, then you probably have a good understanding of what it means for the church to be the household of God. What is the church? Well, first, the church is God's family. Second, the, the church is God's dwelling place. The church is God's dwelling place. Paul also describes the church as the church of the living God. And, and that means that the church isn't just God's household. It's 
also God's house. Now, now the phrase living God is often used in the Bible to contrast God with the lifeless idols. The church is not just the resting place of a stone statue. It is the real home of the true and living God. And the Bible tells us that our God lives among his people. In the Old Testament, God said in Exodus 25 or Exodus 29, 45, he said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. I will dwell among the people of Israel. And that realization that God was in their midst was meant to affect the Israelite community. They were to be a holy people because God was among them. And they were to protect the reputation of God among the nations. As New Testament believers, we should have an even greater sense of the living God among us. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He asks, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And for us as believers today, God doesn't just live among us. He, he lives in us. We are the temple of the living God. And, and when we're doing our own things during the week, it's sometimes hard to sense this. But when we gather together as a church each week, we should sense the presence of the living God among us. As we worship together, as we sing to him and pray to him and, and hear him speak to us from his word and behold him through the, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we should sense that he is with us. Church is now the place where God lives. It's where he manifests his presence here on earth in this age. And that's what makes our, our weekly services, this time that we have together now, so essential. These are the regular times that we come together as the family of God to allow the presence of the living God to be among us. That should make us prioritize these times that we have together as a family. The, the church isn't just a community. It's not just a tight family. It's also a place where the, where the great God of heaven dwells on earth. And we as a church are meant to be a light in the darkness of this world. In the midst of lifeless idols, we are meant to shine forth the glory of the living God through gathering together as his people. The church is God's dwelling place. What is the identity of the church? Well, first, the, the church is God's family. We need to understand that. We also need to understand that it's God's dwelling place. And finally, we need to realize that it upholds God's truth. The church upholds God's truth. In verse 15, Paul describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And his readers in Ephesus would have been very familiar with the idea of pillars. The famous temple of Artemis in Ephesus was a wonder of the ancient world. It was one of the, the greatest, largest Greek temples ever built. It measured 377 feet by 180 feet. And it was easily recognized by the many pillars that encompassed the building. Pliny, the, the Roman historian, wrote that there were 127 pillars, each 60 feet high, that surrounded the building. And these pillars function not only to hold up the roof of the structure, but they directed one's eyes upward. 
So here Paul wrote to the Ephesians that the church was meant to be like one of these pillars. But it was meant to be a pillar of the truth. It was, it was meant to uphold the truth and, and lift it high for all to see. In addition, the church was meant to be a buttress of the truth. A buttress is a, a support. It helps to stabilize a building. In the same way, the church is meant to steadily hold to the truth of God in a world that is always finding ways to try to destabilize it. The church must defend the truth against error. It supports the truth. Now, we must be clear here on the church's relationship to the truth, uh, the church's role in communicating the truth. You know, some, like the Roman Catholic Church, take this verse and say, the, the church isn't just meant to support the truth, it's the foundation of the truth. And they say that in this world full of different interpretations and viewpoints and, and bias, you need the one true Catholic Church guided by the Holy Spirit, to infallibly proclaim what the truth actually means today. And, and this is the verse that they will often go to to support that claim. This is going beyond the text, though. Paul is not saying the church is meant to determine the truth. Or rather, the church is meant to defend the truth that has been revealed already by the Spirit. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 to the church, the household of God is, is built on what? It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The, the church is founded upon the truth of God's word communicated by the Holy Spirit through those apostles and prophets. God's truth is not founded upon the church. The church is not the determiner of truth, but its defender. It's a buttress of the truth. And the church is meant also to display that truth to the world. It's a pillar of the truth. So as a church, we must be committed to upholding God's truth. Not the theories of men, not the philosophies of this day, not the innovations of our age. We must be known for lifting high and defending the truth of Scripture. And so when you come to church on Sundays, you, you should not just expect an inspiring talk or moving songs, you should expect to hear truth from God's word because that's what the church was meant to do. We are meant to uphold God's truth. Now, how are we supposed to do that? How do we uphold God's truth? Well, first, we uphold God's truth by living God's truth. We do it by living God's truth. Now, the word of God was never meant to just be studied and understood intellectually. They are words meant to transform our lives. And so Paul writes in verse 16 about the mystery of godliness that the church is meant to confess. And just notice how Paul describes the great confession of the church in verse 16. It's a, it's a mystery that has been revealed. And we talked briefly about this idea of mystery last week from verse 9. But there Paul used the phrase mystery of the faith to describe the, the gospel message that has been revealed in Christ which deacons in the church need to hold to. And this is the good news that our sins can be forgiven through the work of the Son of God who came to earth to die for us. Now here, Paul uses the phrase mystery of godliness. And I think he's emphasizing the, the kind of life that the gospel message, the mystery of faith, produces. When the gospel that was once hidden but is now revealed in Christ is received, it should produce godliness. The gospel message is meant to find its way into our living. 
It should motivate us to worship God and instill in us a sense of humility before God and cause us to live thankfully for God because of all that he's done for us. And when the church lives out the truth of God in a way that isn't hypocritical, but is truly holy and attractive, then the church serves to defend the truth and and display it in this world. It's when the church isn't living out the truth that it begins to fail in its task to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. God's truth starts to sag and look weak and ineffective when the people who claim to believe it fail to live it out. And so it's not enough to just be a bulldog for the truth of God. Some churches are known for their stances against immorality and their their strong convictions about certain doctrinal issues. They pride themselves over their fidelity to the truth of God. But there's a lack of love and patience and kindness in the way that they communicate the truth. There's a lack of compassion and grace. It's truth without love. It's truth that isn't lived out. It's the gospel without godliness. It's not okay to have orthodox doctrine but offensive lives. To be a pillar and buttress of God's truth, there needs to be an attendant godliness to the gospel message that the church exudes. And so as the church, we must uphold all that is taught in God's word, even the truths that are unpopular today, but we can't forget that the truth of God's word is one that is full of grace. The gospel is a gospel of grace. And that grace needs to be part of our lives. It needs to produce patience and and love and compassion and gentleness and self-control and joy and the fruits of the Spirit that can be dangerously missing in the battles for truth fought by churches today. The mystery of the gospel is great. It is the great confession of the church. In in Ephesus, we learn in Acts 19.34 that the people of the city once shouted, Great! is Artemis of the Ephesians. They shouted that for two hours as they kind of opposed Paul and his ministry in the city. But here Paul is offering up a much greater confession. He is saying that among confessions, the mystery of godliness is the goat. The truth about Christ that results in godliness is where real greatness lies. And in the rest of verse 16, Paul lays out that truth for us. He provides some of the basic truths about Jesus that the church must confess. Okay, So the church is meant to uphold God's truth by living it out, but it's also meant to uphold God's truth by confessing it. Paul writes in verse 16 what is likely a familiar hymn that focuses on Christ, and it begins with how he was manifested in the the flesh. That's a reference to Jesus' incarnation and his humanity. He became a real man. He was also vindicated by the Spirit. And and this is talking about how throughout Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit affirmed his deity and his work. At his baptism, Matthew 3, 16-17 says that the Spirit of God rested on him, affirming that he was God's Son. As Jesus was performing miracles to cast out demons and doing mighty works, the Spirit was also working through Jesus. And at his resurrection, the Romans 1 4 tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit was the Spirit's ultimate confirmation and vindication that Jesus was legit. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He was also seen by angels. They were present at his birth and his temptation, his resurrection, his ascension. 
This indicates that Jesus was made known in the heavenly realm. But he was also made known on earth. He was proclaimed among the nations. And we see this in the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament. This is the, the great commission working itself out. It's the work of missions today. And it's not just that Jesus was proclaimed. He was believed on in the world. He was acknowledged and received from his first disciples to the early church to us today. We have put our faith in Christ. And the mystery of godliness in Christ has really been a, a smashing story of success. It's been accepted and believed by people all over the globe. And finally, Jesus was taken up in glory. As he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in a position of glory and honor. And so this hymn is a summary of the mystery of godliness. It's a summary of the gospel. It speaks of God becoming man. It implies that he died for our sins since he was vindicated by the Spirit through his resurrection from the dead. And it tells us that he has now ascended into heaven at God's right hand. This great message about Christ has been proclaimed and believed throughout the world. Many have been saved. Angels has, have been blessed. And it is our mission to continue to confess it today. This is the truth that the church must confess. What a privilege we have to uphold God's truth as his people. We have the truth about eternal salvation. Well, let's make sure that we defend and display it faithfully. So what makes a church? A church is fundamentally the family of God. It's the place where he dwells. And it's the guardian of his truth. And it's not just one of these things. It's all of them. If we are to function effectively as his church to manifest the glory of God in this world, we must take Paul's description of the church seriously. Let's live as God's family, welcoming everyone who wishes to come, but making sure that we know who's in and who's out. God's rules, pursuing oneness and unity and creating an environment in which every family member feels at home, willing to share with one another, struggle with one another, and to be sanctified by fellow saints. Let's also be the place where God dwells. Let's gather eagerly on Sundays to worship the Lord together in where the presence of the living God is longed for and, and felt and, and sensed so that others might also come and sense the majesty of our great God. Now let's uphold the truth of God together. Let's live it out, let's study it, meditate upon it, orient our lives around it so that it becomes our way of life. And, and let's confess it in our teaching and in our singing and, and in our everyday conversations, both among fellow believers and among the lost. Let's lift the truth of Christ high for all to see. How should we describe the church? Well, it is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. May that be increasingly true of our church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a, what a gift you have given us in the church. You have provided us with a family, a spiritual family, 
loves us and cares for us and welcomes us in. You have made us, uh, you have given us the privilege of, of demonstrating, displaying your truth, defending it in this world. And you have given us the, the great privilege of sensing your presence among us, being able to, to see you uh, in the lives of other believers as we worship together. And Father, thank you for the gift of your church. Help us to be a, to be a family, to, to be a place where, where you dwell and to be an upholder of your truth so that we might manifest your great wisdom uh, to this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name.